I'm joined on the line this evening uh, by uh, Deputy Chairperson of the Commission for Gender Equality and also a development economist and academic at the University of Stellenbosch's Business School, and that is Dr. Ntabi Seng Muleko. Doc, good evening to you and welcome. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Ayabong, uh, and thanks to, also um, to the listeners. Good evening. Yes, yes. yes. Doctor, I, I want us maybe to start off here. Uh, I guess maybe just to sort of establish our bearings as as we try and land in the conversation. Briefly, the Commission for Gender Equality. Some of our listeners might not be familiar with its work, and I think that might be a good place for us to start uh, as we try and tease out some of the work that the Commission uh, uh, is mandated to do and how that interfaces uh, with our broader political economy. Sure. So basically, um, the CGE, uh, which is the Commission for Gender Equality, which I'll refer to, um, just for broadening, is a Chapter 9 institution. It stems from, it, it has been um, promulgated from the Constitution, Section 187, and uh, it really is established to promote and protect gender equality. Uh, it has various uh, tools to do that, uh, and those tools are through uh, investigative hearings, research, uh, policy development. We drive also legislative changes and uh, monitoring and litigation where applicable. So uh, the other element is advocacy. So we have a lot of public education and awareness raising that we do. Uh, we have nine uh, offices across the province. We have provincial representativity and then in the national office, which is based in uh, Constitutional Hill uh, in Joburg. So mm. we quite, uh, we nationally, we have a national footprint and uh, we also have various tools and mechanisms through which we effect our mandate. What is very important is not to uh, think that the CGE is a department of the state. We are not a department of the state. We are a Chapter 9 institution. And so we try to do research, we educate and lobby, and do investigative hearings to try and advance where there are gaps in this regard and to advance this mandate of gender equality. So what we want overall with our efforts together with stakeholders, which we work very closely with, this is private, public, also with NGOs and civil society. We want to ensure that we uh, limit and reduce the incidence of gender oppression and inequality within our society as a whole. And I guess the other dimension, um, you know, having, having outlined that role, and thank you so much for, for that background and context, is um, in your view, I mean, you're also an economist, uh, uh, aside from the fact that you're uh, a gender activist, you're also an economist. And I'm interested in how you draw, uh, uh, Dr. Ntabi Singh, some of those connections, how you draw the connections between the conditions that allow for femicide, for violence against women and children to take root, um, and I guess the configuration of economic power in our society. Absolutely. So one of the things we found in the research, uh, the Center for uh, CSVR, uh, Violence and Reconciliation, has done a report trying to find the incidence of violence, sexual violence as well, among South Africa and the communities in South Africa. And what we found is that uh, in households, one in five women generally in South Africa, which is a very high ratio, have experienced sexual violence. But in households where there's lower income deaths, i.e. in low poverty households, you find that the incidence of violence is one in three. That's 33% of women in those, in those um, communities have actually experienced uh, some form of sexual violence. This means that with economic dependence, or rather where there is lack of income or income streams or jobs, or whether your business is not functional, 
whether you don't have access to resources to have to enable you to have economic dependence. You are therefore uh, reliant on a man who may potentially victimize you or even uh, commit domestic violence and use his power against you uh, in the household. You are more at risk. So there is an economic a dimension to GBV, which we cannot run away from. And statistics actually point to this. So until we deal with the economic issues, which is poverty, which is poverty in our household, poverty amongst uh, the black and, and all our communities that we know with research, statistically say, has shown that the incidence of poverty is heightened amongst rural and also poorer communities, and particularly those that are woman-headed households, uh, and women in particular, suffer much more than men with regards to unemployment and poverty. So there's a linkage between those two Mm, as well. So mm. there is that economic dimension, but there's also the supply side, which talks to the cost related with GBV. So if you look at the economic impact, not just from the side of the victim, but the side of the society as a whole, how much does it cost society? And I mean, there's estimates that are around 2% of GDP. But if you break this down, You've got to understand the direct cost and the indirect cost. There are direct costs on the victim, but also on the state. Mm. We're spending approximately, I mean, now the president had to allocate $1.6 billion to the Emergency Response Action Plan, which has to be accounted for, by the way. But that money is all response mechanisms sure. in the Department of Justice, constitutional, um, in, the, in the correctional services. How do we make sure that those that actually get uh, sentences mm. are taken to the correctional services facility, that costs money. Sure, so sure. you would want to then approximate how much are we spending in healthcare, the shelters that are being now set up to deal with the victims of violence. There's a lot that economically it costs. It costs the individual. There is money in, in, in prescriptions and medical care and having to go to hospitals. And the psychological effects, we have to talk about the pain and the suffering of the individual. That is an intangible mm, cost, which mm. is sometimes not easy to measure from an economic perspective. Yeah. But these are some of the costs that are directly related to the incidence of GBV. And to Doc, Doc I, I mean, I want, uh, us, I want us to pause here complex. for a second. I want us to pause here and we'll continue on this vein of, I guess, quantifying the costs of gender-based violence, um, which of course is also about responding to it through law enforcement and through uh, mechanisms such as the shelters that the president spoke about last night. But I also want us, uh, when we come back, to touch on the preventative side of things uh, and even, I guess, some of the uncompensated uh, uh, labor and even unquantified labor undertaken by work uh, by women in socially reproducing the next generation of the workforce and looking after the old. We'll continue on the other side. 14 minutes it is after 8 p.m. And our thought leader on this Thursday is uh, development economist and deputy uh, uh, deputy uh, commissioner at the uh, Commission for Gender uh, Equality, and uh, that is uh, Dr. Antabi Muleko, and we're talking about the connection uh, between gender-based violence and uh, the configuration of economic power in our society. And uh, I'd love to hear some of your perspectives on this. You can give us a ring on 89 We'll also follow some of your views on uh, Twitter on at MetroFMSA. You can also send us uh, some of your perspectives on Facebook, uh, where uh, you can uh, just drop us a line on uh, the Metro FM uh, page. Now, uh, Dr. Antabi Singh, before we went to the break, you were you were starting to quantify some of the impacts uh, from a law enforcement perspective and I guess from a sort of a social and care economy perspective of uh, dealing with gender-based violence once the incidences uh, and I guess once uh, the uh, survivors have already managed to go through the incident. But, but the big question I think many people are asking is, uh, you know, from a preventative side of things, how do you embolden and empower 
uh, a woman to not only um, one on the first hand go and report some of the cases and I guess making sure that they are well received when they get to the charge office but I guess the other dimension is really empowering uh, a, a woman to leave many abusive relationships and relationships where they find themselves under siege and really having the options outside of the home and outside of that relationship to survive uh, and um, by extension also for some of their children to survive. Yeah, I, I want to challenge you. I've listened mm. to your two points that you've raised. Sure. And uh, the two points are focused on the woman. The woman must respond by going to the cops. The woman must be mm. to because cannot be the issue here is the perpetrated uh, consistency against them by men. Yeah. The focus has to be on the men. The focus has to be on the behavioral change that must come from the men mm. who are perpetrators of this violence. So what usually I, I, I state, and, and CGE has uh, been on a drive for this, is we need to prevent from the society as a whole the sexual objectification of women, mm. which is a norm in our society. The constant abuse and the abuse in terms of violence uh, that is normalized in our society, and this has spillover effects. So, if men generally are accepted, it's acceptable that they are violent towards each other. They deal with situations, cannot communicate. They must just beat each other up and anyone else, for that matter, in such uh, situations where they are highly stressed. That abuse is embedded in our society, mm. and until we deal with this as a norm and we say that it is not normal for you to hit each other, mm. irrespective of mm. the gender, because it will have spillover effects. I think the second point is that young men, teenagers, have been taught that uh, women are objects to be conquered. And I think they see us as objects as well into their old age, into their uh, professional careers. And I think that these are the corrective measures that need to be taken to the preventative measures in families and social structures. Uh, and I think the societal engineering, we need a re-engineering of our mindsets. It's not about how many sexual contexts you have that makes you a man. It's not how, how many you win. Uh, that makes you a man. What about the values? What about being responsible? You know, what about uh, other values that build society up, uh, that show that a man is valuable and contributes to society? But until we don't, we have those in our society, we will still have these negative externalities because of the way women are objectified mm. and not respected. Generally speaking, that's why men cover up for their sure, friends. Sure. That's why men think it's okay that uh, it's just something to look over. And they react when it's out there, but near them. I can tell you now, many men know friends and people around them who are perpetrators yes. of PBV, but they've mm. never done anything. Mm. So they will do something when it's on the television, when it's out there, but close to them. There are perpetrators around them. Have they reported them? Have they thought? counseling for them for those men have they themselves that they are perpetrators sought counseling and help so they, these are some of the tools that we need to focus on mm. so that we can quell the actual rate and incidence of violence so that you don't have to spend so much in terms of responding to the incidence mm. of femicide mm. and also gdb That's I really number appreciate one. but i think the second yeah, yeah. yes no, no, I'm saying I really appreciate the point and I guess the challenge uh, that uh, you're presenting to us here because, uh, I mean, the reality is that uh, in order for us to stop femicide and to stop violence undertaken by men against women and children, uh, the locus yes. of our attention should be men. And I certainly appreciate and I take that point. Uh, please go to the second point you were making. The second point is that if you know you're going to get away with it, you will continue this behavior. Oh. Only the... Out of 100, nine men would get jailed or actually have a sentence uh, that is actually uh, sworn against them. So the, 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 the conviction rate 
of 9 out of 100, it speaks to 9%, sometimes 6%. So we have a very weak justice system. Now that speaks to the response. So you have to have a strong issue on the preventative, but you also have a have very strong justice system to deal with the response of the incidents so that you can have justice for those perpetrators and those who are victims of this. So our system is actually overburdened. So we need immediately to fast-track uh, the financing of prioritization on the response side, particularly on the justice cluster, particularly of the uh, allocation of state uh, machinery in these priority areas where you can make sure that your throughputs are increased. I think the National Prosecuting Authority must be financed, specifically sexual offenses courts. It's not enough to just have courts. These courts must have fast rates of conviction. We cannot have cases that take 18 months, 24 months, five years. We cannot have police that lose evidence, police that are not in terms of systemically helping quell this issue by making sure that cases are struck off the roll. We need to make sure that SATS is held accountable. And these are some of the things that CGE is trying to uh, do programs and hold commissioners to account provincially in terms of non-performance. So we don't have necessarily a very high conviction rate, and we need to improve this. The other aspect of the justice cluster is the lab services. Yes. We have seen that we have very low number of uh, lab services in the country. That means that it takes years for your toxicology report, for instance, uh, where rape occurs. Rape kits are not in large supply, but even when they get to the centralized cases, you find that the office in Cape Town services the Free State, the Northern Cape, and the Eastern Cape, various provinces. And so you need, a, you need to establish funds to ensure that we have the additional support for these labs to finalize their work so that the justice process is not stalled because of these hindrances. Mm. So these are some of the systemic flaws that are in our system that have not necessarily been alleviated systemically. And I think these are where the, the funding is required. We need resources in terms of capabilities, but also a political will sure. in order to deal with these things so that the prioritization of the budget mm. is accounted for and then the interventions are budgeted for so that you can deal with now the responsiveness okay. so that it's not wasted, but rather much more effectively uh, targeted so that that you increase mm. the rate of uh, conviction. Doc, I want us to pause here for a second and take a quick spot break. When we come back, and uh, we'll wrap up our conversation uh, uh, in uh, the next 10 minutes or so, when we come back, I want us to speak about uh, uh, how we sort of take this to the workplaces, to the boardrooms, and also to how we allocate capital. 24 minutes it is after 8 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. Uh, it's our Thought Leader Thursday segment, and we're in conversation uh, with the uh, Deputy Chairperson of the Commission for Gender Equality, Dr. Ntabiseng Muleko, and uh, who's a development economist and academic at the University of Stellenbosch's Business School, and uh, but also uh, certainly a gender activist in her own right. And, uh, uh, Doc, I mean, I want to. We've spoken, I guess, about. Uh, some of the issues, uh, and uh, I like the point you were making towards the end of how do we begin to speak to the numbers in not only this coming special adjustment budget, but in future budgets that are able to recognize yeah. how we prioritize this challenge of gender-based violence. And it could be anything from uh, the building of shelters. It could be uh, some of the behavioral changes that we want from men and young boys. It could also be, uh, you know, some of the social infrastructure in our communities, um, 
basic day-to-day things like putting street lights in, clearing places, you know, like Izganga and many of uh, of our townships, and and so on and so mm. forth. And so uh, I want us maybe to think about this whole gender ba- gender sensitive budgeting and what that looks sure. like, um, but also. Uh, in how we allocate capital, because some of the other power rests in private spaces and uh, in corporations. Uh, And uh, I think in many cases, we probably haven't shone enough of a spotlight about how people allocate capital in the private sector and how that can be engendered, if I can put it like that. Absolutely. So we have made various submissions on uh, gender-responsive budgeting uh, that Treasury, number one, should have every department ring fence and allocate budgets that speak to uh, gender equality programs. It's very difficult to measure impact uh, of these and assess the actual prioritization of this as a goal if it's not ring sense. So we've made a loud noise around this. And I think we continue to uh, work together with the relevant departments and stakeholders to see this as a reality. Uh, Budget must be disaggregated. We must ring fence the budget. If something is uh, not prioritized, you will note that there is no money or resources allocated to that. So we want to see going forward, and I think we commend uh, the allocation of 1.6 billion in the emergency response uh, by the president, but we would want to know where that money went and where was it ring fenced and how the implication has been measured as a response to that budget allocation. Mm. Each of the departments should have programs that speak to uh, the mandate and 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 the processing of one economic empowerment of women. We must not leave that out. We've spoken right at the onset about the economic dependence of women on uh, their partners that may at times lead to violence. And I think once you start to quell the issue of economic dependence, which is highly prevalent in our society and highly toxic, uh, and, and, and the empowerment of women helps, therefore, to give the woman the power to leave because they have financial dependence, to look after their dependence, and they will not rely uh, solely on a partner that may be uh, violating them. So mm. I think it's very important for us to then see, in the economic cluster, how many women are empowered through the existing incentive program. In the economic cluster, with the DFIs, is the IDC, is the National Empowerment Fund, is the uh, Development Bank of South Africa disaggregating the beneficiaries of these loan finance are women actually being empowered to have companies, even at a micro level with the FIFA? Uh, we need to start to measure uh, these allocations and see who are the beneficiaries. As much as we want broad-based economic empowerment, we also want gender equality and that women must access these finances and these funds. So we, we have not seen these sufficiently. We have produced reports that speak to the public procurement bill, and we have produced inputs on the procurement allocations by Treasury. Mm. And we're saying that as CGE, we want to see that targeted allocation, I think it's 50%, uh, we want that met. Even that is not met. And there's no one holding uh, departments to account. And I think we as the CGE need to step up and become more dogmatic rather and really decisive about what action we will take uh, when departments Mm. are not meeting their own targets. And I think we can sanction and I think perhaps we need to be tougher 
with the sanctions that are given within our mandate uh, and, and how we hold these ministries to account. Mm. But I think in terms of uh, the funding model and the gender budget, uh, gender sensitive budgeting uh, and, and the response mechanisms when government departments don't come to the party, we have something we can do. I think on the private sector side, sexual harassment, uh, policies that speak to even economic empowerment of women are not taken seriously. Mm. I mean, gender pay gaps, massive gender pay gaps they, in the private sector. Absolutely. Mm. That's even another topic. But they don't even submit reports to the uh, Employment Equity Commission. Yes. They don't submit report. They don't take it seriously. Mm. The issue of uh, empowerment of women and black economic empowerment. Yeah. So these are the issues that we're grappling with as a country. It's more of a compliance-based type of a response mm. rather than really for the good of the country. Sure. And I think these are some of the... We need to partner as stakeholders and say, how will we hold uh, these companies to account? Mm. I think they can also come to the part we have seen many companies... Uh, uh, allocating, donating resources to fight GBV, uh, putting emphasis in place. I know there was even uh, one of the state agencies asking what can they do to change the behavior uh, of their companies. Uh, it was actually SARS approaching CG, and there's been many others who want to workshop their employees, who want to work with uh, institutions like the CGE to sensitize, because they understand that their workforce is within a South African community and the South African space. So there may be patriarchal norms and issues that they carry from the community that they come from and they are bringing. Mm. So these are, uh, uh, there's a whole host of interventions from a funding perspective uh, that need to be taken. But I think on the justice cluster side, we definitely need to do the 80-20 rule. What is going to have the greatest effect mm. with, with the resources that we have? We're currently in an economic recession. We have COVID-19 issues that are going to come in the next 16 12 to 18 months and in the short term. It is unlikely that we will increase budget, but what we need to do is look at what has the greatest effect where and focus on those interventions that are going to have a multiplicity mm. of outcomes sure, and sure. have a multiply effect, so to speak. Definitely. So I think we cannot look at increased allocations, but rather budgeting according to prioritization mm. and those programs that really have increased effect. And I think we need to revisit these programs as a state, yeah. as CGE and the stakeholders uh, right now because there's cutting of budget. Treasury is minimizing yeah. wastage of expenditure, reprioritization is happening across the, the public sector. Zero-based budget. And I think companies as well. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So everyone is going to have to tighten their belt. Mm. So in response to the, the issues, we cannot reduce our focus and emphasis. So the question is, how do we use these existing funds that we have more effectively. And I think we need to go to the drawing board Mm. and then say, based on what we have, this will have the largest impact. We do need to allocate here because we can see research has shown and in South Africa, given the context that we're in, we cannot stop Mm. uh, mitigating responses, but this is likely to have the best effect. So I think that that is not something I can answer now because we're in a different space. It would require stakeholder mobilization and consultation, Mm. but I think Mm. we have very limited time. Things must happen because GBV is is really a pressing issue, as the president has said, that it's a crisis situation. But I think we will come out of this. I think sure. we do have the necessary uh, the necessary uh, uh, skills in the country, the capacity. We've got the willingness. We've got young activists. We've got the resources. We've got institutions like none. No other country has something like the CGE. Very few countries mm. have as many uh, as, as many supportive presidents uh, and. 
responses, the national strategic plan and the interventions, but we must now implement them. We must make sure that we do them with expeditious movement. We cannot delay mm. because women are dying. People are getting tired of marches. We have to act. We cannot any longer talk. So I think even me, I want to say, I must stop talking now and go and do something. But, but, but we need to act okay. on a serious point. Doctor, yeah, we'll have to leave it there. And, uh, you know, the lot of things are shiang or guambia with picket lines. And uh, I guess maybe uh, maybe all of us need to be doing that. Uh, I mean, I, I don't say that in no, any... No, we need to do what we can. Yeah, I don't say that in any jest because I think uh, you yeah. know, we need to fight this on multiple fronts and in different terrain. Dr. Muleko, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and have a good evening.